I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half, half as well, well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. Okay, so this is episode three. Uh, this week we read chapters 11 through 14 of The Hobbit. And that is On the Doorstep, Inside Information, Not at Home, and Fire and Water. And I really liked this section. It's very action-packed. Um, it, it It's so much faster. It moves so much faster oh, totally. than the book leading up to this. And so much of the book, going back to the first chapter, is about, you know, the Lonely Mountain and Smaug. And this is where we uh, build up to all of that. And it's not quite the end, though. Nope. So in On the Doorstep, they uh, have left Lake Town and are going up to the mountain and searching for this... Uh, secret door Mm -hmm. that we had heard about in the very first uh, chapter where Gandalf had this map with the secret entrance to the side. I think it's really funny how it's like seemingly unprepared the dwarves are to do the like deal with the specificity of finding the door. Um, they've kind of like given up hope of like, oh, we're, we're never going to find it. And Bilbo's really the one who is leading this group at this point. Yeah, um, totally. I, I always did find it weird how they are just very like quick to despair after all of this. And it's just like, they're so close. What, what, what did you think really was going to happen? Right. <laughs> like, like, of course, this was going to be difficult. The whole journey has been difficult. You're so you're literally there. And it's like just that little bit of resistance, it it kills their morale. Yeah. Well, thank God they had Bilbo, I guess, to (laughs) restore that. Right. Um, But yeah, not a lot else really happens in this chapter. I I do like, like, you know, the thrush and like the fact that Bilbo really understands how to look for things and, and, you know, his, his, his burglary skills have taught him well of how to... Um, and just like yeah, the he's riddles. Got a very keen observation and yeah oh yeah you know we've been prepped through so much of the book for him to um like be this master of riddles and and he you know easily kind of spots the thrush and uh finds the door and um it's it's really amazing i, I mm-hmm. think it, it's such a magical moment when the door finally uh, or the the hole the reveals keyhole it, the keyhole itself, yeah. yeah um that's very exciting yeah, and then they're finally in. This is all finally paid off, and now they have access into there, and it's really up to Bilbo now to see, you know, is there a dragon in there? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> the big kind of unknown is uh, Smaug. So. And so that leads us up to the next chapter, Inside Information. And yeah, I have a lot to say about these next like few chapters uh, that we see with Smaug. There's a lot of uh, interesting stuff at play here. Okay, excellent. Um, yeah, I really, you know, think that Smaug is a very, I mean, cool <laughs> beast. Mm-hmm. Um, he's super intelligent, but of course has this like fatal flaw of being a, a bit too prideful, um, a bit too greedy. Yeah, um, very susceptible to flattery. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, I think it's uh, kind of amazing that, you know, the the trajectory we've seen Bilbo go on from the very beginning where he can not even like conceive of what leaving the the not the Shire but leaving his home um would be and what that might mean for his life or his safety and then here he is knowing that he's like the only one who can 
sneak around <laughs> and check out Smog enough to um, aid in their adventure. Well, I just really love this kind of evolution of Bilbo's courage we kind of see throughout the story. Um, we noticed uh, in episode one, we really start to see this with the trolls. We see this again in the Misty Mountains with escaping with Gollum. Uh, it really comes to a head when he's fighting off the spiders and he's like actually killing things for the first time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now he's like going one on one with a dragon. And it is just like he's come a long way from being uh, that Baggins um, under the hill in his little uh, home and is, you know, running out worrying about his handkerchief. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, it's this, you know, this kind of part of the story we're getting at the end. I really appreciate seeing the evolution in Bilbo. And there's this one great um, passage I love where it's talking about, you know, one of the bravest things Bilbo ever did was like in the passage before he even gets into Smaug's uh, lair is like the decision to go on. Mm-hmm. I think he says like he fought the real battle in the tunnel alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I loved that part because it, it really is kind of like this. He doesn't know what he's getting into, but he's like, <laughs> right. whatever, I'm just going to go ahead. And we see that and this is just like very classic Hobbit bravery. And yeah, they actually reference that again later when. Um, like Bilbo himself says something about it uh, after he's already spied on Smaug and then they he's actually had a conversation with the dragon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third time he goes in, he realizes, you know, I was able to go in when I knew there was a dragon in there. Now I'm not sure if there's a dragon in there. Um, so why am I hesitating? Like, yeah, this so, is really time to go. Yeah, he's being very logical about it. And very yeah. Like, uh, so why should I be afraid if I've already faced the dragon? You right, know, and now exactly. I might not be there. Um and Smaug himself, like you said, like we talked a little bit about his personality, you know, he's very uh, manipulative and uh, but also proud and, you know, susceptible to flattery. And this is something I really like about Tolkien's dragons as opposed to something like, um, like I don't know, like Game of Thrones or other fantasy epics where dragons are really kind of this big physical force. They're just mm-hmm. a big monster. But in Tolkien's world, there are these very intelligent, crafty beings. Right. Yeah. And um, just to provide a little context, like I feel like I have with all these creatures, evil creatures specifically we've seen, a lot of them have their roots in the Silmarillion, which I've noted he was writing at the same time, really, as he was writing The Hobbit. And one of the major villains in the Silmarillion is uh, the father of dragons, Glaurung, who would have been Smaug's ancestor. And he features in the story of the children of Hurin or the story of Turin. It's essentially kind of the story of the first dragon and the first uh, dragon slayer, Turin. And Glaurung, we see some very similar traits to Smaug. These Mm -hmm. are, again, he's a very crafty, manipulative dragon. And there's like a similar uh, thing with Bilbo where he's like kind of comes under the dragon's gaze while he's talking about like, should you trust these dwarves? Mm -hmm. And Bilbo's starting to kind of like really like buy into like, and it's really kind of the dragon working his spell on him. And we see a similar thing with Glaurung and Turin. Uh, back in the day where uh, Glaurung is, you know, when Turin looks in his eyes, he's a, he comes under the spell of the dragon and kind of believes his lies. And so I think it's a really neat trait that Tolkien has, like, kind of in a lot of his dragons. Yeah, I totally agree. I really like when dragons are able to communicate, whether that's, like, psychically or um, through moving their mouths and actually speaking um, with the main characters. I, I, I think that's a lot more compelling than I, you know, kind of what we see in Harry Potter, which is like, oh, they're these big monsters. Like, yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's something to that, but it it's just 
when when we're talking about magical beasts, let's like you know bring them a little bit in more into the drama of the story, and yeah. um, it rather than just being this like plot device of threat, you know, bodily harm, which Smaug also is, you know, so. Um, yeah, he's like this almost elemental force of nature. Right. I mean, the way the townsfolk of Lake Town kind of think of uh, Smaug and his rampages is almost like a vol- like the Lonely Mountain is like a volcano where it's like there's this like thunder bubbling up from underneath the mountain that mm. they hear sometimes, you know. So he is like this kind of elemental threat. But then at the same time, he's sort of just like this kind of uh, manipulative aristocrat. <laughs> yeah. Who's like kind of just trying to uh, drive a wedge between, you know, Bilbo and the hobbits. And, uh, you know, he also is very conspiratorial minded. Like he's like, oh, the lake men are in on this. And like, yeah, he immediately kind of, uh, although he doesn't recognize Bilbo's smell, he can tell that he's been on the lake. Um, Well, he calls himself Barrel Barrel Rider. And, you know, Bilbo thinks he's being very clever and he's kind of getting a little ahead of himself, but he doesn't realize how much he's actually revealing. Totally. Because he's like, Barrels, oh, you mean like the trade between the people of Lake Town and the elves? Like, okay, so I know you have an alliance with them somehow. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, Bilbo kind of mistakes Smaug as like a complete recluse who doesn't remember how the world outside works, you know, but um, he's not oh, yeah. but, obsessed I mean, with, so obsessed with his treasure that he's forgotten what happens outside yeah. of his lair. And I mean, even with his treasure, when Bilbo takes that cup, it's like he knows everything down to the last thing. Right. I mean, he doesn't forget a detail. Absolutely. So I think that's a really cool uh, thing. And I like what he says about that. He's kind of like, take more. There's plenty, but like... I, I know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I, I find this chapter and a lot of these chapters that we're going to be talking about to be so full of imagery um, that, that pulls me into the story, the descriptions of the, the treasure and how it's like molded into um, Smaug's oh, it's stomach. Oh, such a cool image. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, that he's just been laying on it for so long that at this point... It's like Jules, part of his scale. Yeah, like... they've embedded into his body... Um, the description of just the cave is filled with worm stench, you know, like, mm-hmm. so it, it just, you know, like, it's so gross to talk about. Like, it, it reminds me of like, yeah, if you ever get too close to like a reptile like a, enclosure, like a snake terrarium yeah, or something. Yeah, then you, there's this like specific smell that comes yeah. with that. Um, and just imagining that <laughs> to such a larger scale, mm-hmm. um, we lose ponies again. Or do we? I mean, Smaug says he eats. He says he does, but then later they say that they found them wandering. Oh, so and that's something I just picked up on for the first time through this read through, and it's just like, oh, so that was Smaug just trying again to get at Bilbo, and yeah, yeah, but um, he probably definitely smelled like pony. (laughs) Yeah, so that's why he said that. But I think that I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure they do actually find them. Yeah, he says something about that's how he knows the dwarves are there because he's like. You're a fool if you think that I could eat a, a dwarf ridden pony yeah. and not Maybe know. he did eat one or two of them, mm-hmm. but I, I do think there were some survivors. Interesting. Which I was, I remembered to make a mental note of because I knew you, I was like, oh, here we go with the ponies again. Right. And we also see that Smaug has this like fatal flaw, which is a soft part on his belly. Yeah. And well, oh, I thought you were going to get something where a little different with that. I was oh. going to say his... Uh, being susceptible to flattery is oh, this yes. sort of... Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because Sorry. Then he... <laughs> Start that all over again. I thought that was good. Um, but when Bilbo's like, oh, I just wanted to see if the tales were true, 
he rolls over and reveals his stomach to him where we see all these jewels but we see this one little hollow space right that bilbo makes note of and that is crucial because then the thresh hears it and as we'll see that word gets out and that ends up being a pretty fatal thing oh yeah (laughs) Yeah. and i mean again this is just part of this whole thing of evil being uh self-defeating by nature that we see in tolkien like the trolls bickering leads to them uh being turned to stone Gollum and his paranoia over Bilbo escaping is the very thing that leads to him showing Bilbo the way out. And now his bragging about his body and in his, you know, his beauty and his majesty is what leads to the information about his uh, one weakness. Right. And so um, it's like the bad guys can't help but screw themselves over. Right. Exactly. Uh, And even though, you know, I wouldn't characterize the Wood Elves as evil, by any means in mm. this story. They're antagonistic. They're antagonistic to the, to the Yeah, exactly. So, you know, even for them it's just like the the lushness of their luxurious lifestyle of having wine and, and yeah, yeah. partying. And they and... get a little neglectful and then yeah. they're able to escape. Yeah, totally. Another interesting thing I thought about this chapter was Smaug's dream he has as Bilbo's sneaking around of, you know, a little warrior who, uh, you know, I think he says like pricks him with a sword mm-hmm. or something. And I think this is like an allusion to earlier scripts of The Hobbit in which Tolkien actually had Bilbo slaying Smaug, which wow. is a huge departure from what it ended up being. Absolutely. Um, I think Tolkien decided that Bilbo should have played, you know, more of the burglar role and that maybe there should have been a much more kind of classic uh, dragon slayer that right. we will get into in a couple chapters. But so I thought that was just a very interesting kind of little nod to uh, the earlier versions of the tale. Right. Okay. Moving on to chapter 13, not at home. Big development here as far as what we're going to experience kind of after we're done with these Smaug focused chapters. Yes. Um, And that is the Arkenstone, which I believe was mentioned two chapters back. Yeah, it was, like, mentioned, but it hasn't really played a big role. And even, like, in these last couple chapters we're going to talk about, it's still not too big of a plot point. Right. But it, you know, it's it's definitely getting there. But basically, you know, before Bilbo goes into this treasured-filled hall, he's heard the stories of this beautiful stone. Yeah, that's kind of like the birthright kind of of Thorin's people. Right, exactly. Um, and this is where we kind of see Smaug's manipulation of Bilbo actually take a little bit hold during that scene you know you know that Bilbo already has like a little bit of there's a little bit of friction between him and the dwarves especially as he's had to take on this like leadership role towards the end oh definitely um and uh but like right before he talks to Smaug um Thorin has assured him like yeah like you are our dude man like we care about yeah, you. yeah we've been like counting on you and like really relying on you these so, past few stages of the journey yeah like, so you're going to be well rewarded and then he goes in and smaug kind of talks this talk um about, can you really trust these dwarves right like do they even have a plan like right, exactly and bilbo's like, like oh i never thought about that <laughs> like yeah yeah um and not that bilbo's like you know going to confront them about it but he sees the Arkenstone amongst all of the, the treasure, and he grabs it for himself. And he doesn't tell anyone. He doesn't tell anyone, which yeah. I think is wild. I mean, I, I I see what leads him to do it. But again, it's one of these moments of 
uh, it reminds me so much of like what happens with the ring where he just innately knows that like I want this and I'm not going to tell anyone about it. I mean, so much of Tolkien's works revolve around these uh, magical or semi-magical pieces of jewelry, whether it's the three Silmarils and the Silmarillion, the one ring in the Lord of the Rings or the Arkenstone Mm -hmm. in The Hobbit, which I mean, really almost it's like, I see like the Arkenstone as more of an, the villain of the story than Smaug. Like, yeah. Because this is what everyone's fighting over. Right. And honestly, probably want something that drew Smaug to Erebor in the first place. Mm. And um, so, yeah, we do see a big uh, theme in Tolkien's works is kind of pride and um, but also greed over mm-hmm. these uh, these works that were made by, you know, craftsmen and, and that people will go to war over. Um, these very precious jewels and ring, just good old fashioned greed. Yeah, there, there's a huge theme, you know, in addition to evil being self-defeating, materialism is definitely looked down upon in these books. Like any amount of attachment to a physical thing seems to be the downfall of usually, you know, the, uh, not necessarily the villains of the story, but the, the main characters. Yeah, there, there's a, a bit from the Silmarillion I really love where it's talking about Aule, who is this kind of like blacksmith deity. And they said that he um, he delighted in the making of things, but only in the, um, the act of making. Mm-hmm. He didn't get possessive over the things right. that he made. He would, he would make and he would give freely. And in Tolkien's world, this is kind of like the ideal craftsman. Right. But there's so many other uh, blacksmiths <laughs> in yeah. Tolkien's world that kind of are, are morally flawed characters because they create these beautiful things and then they become very possessive over them. Absolutely. And it's, it becomes more than just about the act of making and just the art of it. And it becomes more about the possessing of mm-hmm. that art. And that's what kind of leads them down the path of corruption. Yeah, like you know again i'm i'm a new reader to all of this uh but i've heard so many of the tales from you and just like running through them in my head it's just like yeah a lot of the stories center around people being like what a beautiful thing uh it's mine i i must make it mine i must have it Mm -hmm. um whether it's like galadriel's hair even you know or like the silmarils or the ring you know yeah possessiveness and greed are like a huge theme in these books yeah and i I think um, there's something about that that I think is very mythic and reminds me of a lot of like folk legends. Um, Totally. These cautionary tales. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for a world that is so rich and unique on its own, um, that sort of ties it back to something extremely relatable and and it feels like Tolkien's writing in like a, a very strong tradition. Another thing we see in this chapter is Thorin gifts Bilbo the Mithril shirt, which is, A, just like, I think a really great sign of, like, their relationship, Mm -hmm. and that has evolved a lot from Thorin really thinking Gandalf was making a mockery of him by even, like, suggesting this guy to, like, now he's giving him this chainmail that, you know, belonged to an elven princeling, and... It's just like, and he is like the king under the mountain. I mean, this is a kingly gift to uh, someone who aided him in this epic quest. And I think it's really cool. And as we know, like this goes on to be, he passes this shirt on to Frodo. And, I, you know, the shirt here doesn't play a whole lot of role in this right. story. 
But, and again, this is one of these things that I don't think Tolkien knew how big it was going to be until he wrote Lord of the Rings. But, you know, this shirt saves Frodo, um, I, I think, at least once in the Minds of Moria chapter. And, I mean, without this gift from Thorin, Frodo would not have survived his journey. Yeah. So it's, like, crazy to think about how so many of these little things, even this far back, kind of play a very crucial role mm-hmm. later on in the War of the Ring. Um this part totally broke my heart because like when Bilbo grabs the Arkenstone, um, even though he's been told he can choose whatever part of the treasure for his own by the dwarves, he acknowledges that he knows that he's the like, Arkenstone's yeah, not part I of that. have a feeling this is the exception to the rule. Yeah, but absolutely. He takes it anyway. He takes it anyway. And so like when he's handed this Mithril, um, he's got that in his pocket. And it's just so sad because, yeah. like, Thorin is being so generous. generous and, like, welcoming, I guess, you know, in a way that um, he hasn't <laughs> so far in the in the entire story been um, that it's, it, it's just like, oh, no, damn it. Like, I know that's going to lead to something not very good happening. Um, yeah, and I'm, I, I think there's a big difference, too, between um, it seems like there's all these indications again that materialism is not good. This greed for material things is not good, um, as opposed to like what it seems that Tolkien sees as the real uh, virtuous goal of this adventure, which is like reclaiming their homeland and and mm-hmm. ascending to the throne, becoming the new king, becoming the, the new king under the mountain. Okay, the next chapter is fire and water and. I mean, this is a pretty, like, we're not quite at the climax of the overall story of The Hobbit, but I mean, this is the climax of the Smaug storyline. Absolutely. This is uh, really big, too. It's the first time in the book that we totally are not with the party of Yeah, dwarves. this is a huge narrative shift. Yeah. Like, so far, I mean, the story has followed The Hobbit. Right. And this is basically a point where it's just totally like, hey, so... Remember when Smaug ran off to the people of Lake Town? Right. Let's take a break from the dwarves for a minute. Right. They're just chilling. Let's go here. And <laughs> uh, and so it's like pretty uh, abrupt and pretty uh, shocking. But I I really love this chapter. It's just uh, it's just pretty actiony. Mm-hmm. And we're also introduced to a whole brand new character who's very important. Like yeah. he wasn't even introduced in the warm welcome chapter no. where they first came to Lake Town. And I think that's kind of because. I mean, I could be wrong on this, but given that Bilbo was originally supposed to be the dragon slayer, right. I feel like Bard maybe wasn't created at this point. Mm-hmm. And then Tolkien was just like, maybe Bilbo's not the right person. So then he created this character, Bard, um, who I love. He's he's like very classic. I don't know. Like he's like a knight, even though that's not what he is in the story. Yeah. You know, I will not miss any opportunity to tie things back to the Silmarillion. <laughs> And just as, you know, I you know, I was noting the similarities between Smaug and his ancestor Glaurung, the father of dragons. Um, here we have you know, if, if Tolkien needed another character to slay this dragon that wasn't Bilbo, he basically uh self plagiarizes from himself with the character of Turin. The physical and character the physical description and character traits we get of Bart is he is tall, he's dark haired. He is grim and predicting <laughs> gloomy things. Yeah. And if you've read the Silmarillion, you know this is pretty on par for uh, Turin. He is one of Tolkien's great heroes, but he's uh, not jolly. He's not, 
even very like a, a hopeful character. No. He's, he's very uh, like dark and uh, moody. And so I, I love the fact that the dragon slayer of Smaug echoes the dragon slayer of the very first dragon. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, another thing Turin is known for, he kills the dragon uh, with his black sword um, thrusting up into his stomach. And Bard uses a black, black arrow, arrow that he yeah. um, also the weak spot is on the stomach of the dragon. And yeah. so I love these little parallels back to the ancient days. And yeah, it's um, it's really funny. I, I think it's great that we start this chapter with a grim voice saying like saying his doubts about what's going on on the mountain. And oh, all and the townspeople really are like, worried. oh, yeah. And like the, you know, the king will reclaim his mountain and the rivers will run with gold. And he's just like. All he's going to do is waken that dragon. Yeah. It's going to come and just like fuck our town up. Yeah. And he's right. Yeah, he's totally (laughs) right. And it's said like, well, at least he was a little skeptical because they weren't completely unprepared. (laughs) Like, um, he's what allows them to be a little bit on on their toes for when Smaug completely destroys Lake Town. Yeah. Um, And you said he's like not a knight, but he is like this lord bereft of his family's lordship yeah um because he is descended from Girion mm. of dale you know i'd say that's another similarity with turin he mm-hmm. was a guy who was supposed to be a prince or king of men and you know his lands were overrun and uh he was kind of like a prince in exile and i just want to bring in another comparable character at least and i know he's very different than he is in the movies in the books but he gives me major Aragorn vibes totally. too. No, yeah. Like this kind of, you know, he's skeptical. He doesn't want to kind of get too optimistic about something. He's not hasty about like, like I'm going to reclaim. Like, and right. I mean, even though Aragorn in the books was much more willing to reclaim the Lord- kingship of Gondor, he was still like very, he, he was waiting for the right moment. He wasn't going right. to uh, just jump in half cocked. Yeah. And so, yeah, with Bard, we see this kind of guy who's just like, he's thinking, you know, he's very I, aware. I could restore Dale maybe. Yeah. Um, but if the dragon was killed, he's very aware and... of everything that's, that's going on, especially the power struggle between him and the master, you know, as soon as he kills Smaug, uh, the townsfolk want to crown him King. Yeah. I mean, the master was just like, I'm just going to run away and yeah. like, um, abandon the people. And yeah, I mean, if I was the townspeople, I couldn't blame them. Yeah, really. absolutely. And he, you know, notes this, but he's not so focused on, on that title as like actually accomplishing things. So he kind of, he, he starts the rebuilding process of Lake town in the name of the master. So he's giving all these orders. Yeah. He's the one running the show, but he's still aware of the, the current, yeah power and I, I didn't think about this at the time but that's another similarity to the tale of turin uh he kind of usurps the lordship of the the village he was living in there was like a lord there but mm-hmm. like no one really respected him as mm-hmm. much and you know then you have this is like ultimate badass stroll into town right who's protecting the people and they're just like oh to hell with you like this guy's our yeah. lord. and even though i think the master is much more um deserving of it than the character in the silmarillion <laughs> Um, yeah, there's just like, again, all these similarities. But... And I, I mean, again, we have that theme of people who are misers, people who are obsessed with wealth, just like the, the master kind of are not well respected <laughs> by the narrative. Um, they're like, the people are just like down with the money, bags. the money bags. Yeah. Like we, we have to 
like up with the the bowmen you know mm-hmm. um yeah i i really like this part um and we see the wood elves again yeah like they're they hear about the death of smaug and uh they're going to go check it out and, <laughs> and check out the treasure and check out the treasure because <laughs> uh, i mean everyone you know no one has any reason to believe the dwarves are still alive right um though i will say bard holds out hope he has this moment where it's yeah. like they're probably dead and that probably sucks but if on the off chance that they're alive we should not like demonize what they've done because they have access to tons of money now that could help us help rebuild us. yeah exactly i just i just really like how smart bart is yeah he's very he's very reasonable um <laughs> in a story full of unreasonable characters exactly yeah and he's like he just kind of he shows up the very chapter he shows up and he kills the main villain yeah which i excellent. think is very uh yeah it's very funny but it helps mythologize this character of bard yeah um as this ultimate hero in which you know bilbo is not the ultimate hero bilbo is a very unconventional hero totally and bard even though he's very briefly in it is a much more classic uh, hero yeah and you know from a, a different perspective i like that he's local right like we don't have you know these adventurers from outside kind of like cause this big problem and save the people at the same time we have them cause a problem and then a local guy is like you know what uh i'm gonna kill that dragon bam it's yeah, done totally a cool thing i do think that ties all of this together and in tolkien's whole world we have four dragons that are named we have Glaurung, we have Smaug, there's Encalagon the Black, who was the greatest winged dragon of all time, and then there is uh, one that's just mentioned very briefly, Skatha the Worm, who was killed by an ancient uh, ancestor of the people of Rohan. And there's something, there's a line I really like in the earlier Silmarillion that was written around the time of The Hobbit, where after the overthrow of the original Dark Lord, it, you know, he says that a lot of his forces, like the orcs and whatnot, were destroyed, but a lot of them went on to like still live on in after days to still be a problem for people. Okay. And so we see like the Misty Mountains. Right. Stuff. But he also mentions um, not just orcs, but dragons, too. He says that two dragons actually escaped those battles in the Silmarillion and went on to breed. And but the the end of the book kind of prophesizes all shall all shall perish by the valor of mortal men. And mm. so I find it very interesting. There was no real like elven dragon slayers or yeah. dwarf dragon slayers. The closest I think you can get is Eärendil, Elrond's father, who kills Encalagon, and he was half elvish, half man. And even though he chose to become an elf, he it said that personality wise, he always felt more aligned with men. Interesting. And yeah. so, but then other than that, like I said, we have an ancestor of the people of Rohan. We have Turin Tarambar, and now we have Bard. So we have all these epic mortal men uh dragon slaying heroes which i think is also really kind of cool tying back to tolkien's uh mythological influences like beowulf he's a dragon slayer we have we have sigurd in norse mythology who i think it's the dragon fafnir and then you know king arthur legend you know we have dragons and stuff and you know the association with men yeah and so uh i I just always found that a very interesting detail that you know men are dragon slayers in his world yeah and so i think that that may have played a part in his decision to maybe not have bilbo kill the dragon and maybe create a whole new character that's similar to one of his ancient dragon slaying heroes but in in modern um days so this is something we'll talk a lot more about 
uh, in the Lord of the Rings and definitely in the Silmarillion, but the whole, uh, the different treatment of elves versus humans and the different perspectives on mortality and what death means to either of them. Um, you know, the elves being immortal and, and the, the humans being mortal, of course, um, and how that's seen as like a gift um, that the elves will never even get the the pleasure of experiencing a mortal life, you know? Totally. Um, I, I think that's a very interesting thing that is somehow linked to this, you know, having such a uh, great beast be an enemy of men rather than these more magical um, creatures. I, I think, you know, we're seeing some of that there, that there's a high cost <laughs> yeah. for men um, that the elves aren't kind of dallying in at all. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's more impressive for a man to kill a dragon yeah. than an elf, you know? Um, so it's just definitely that really cool classic mythological tale of just you know man versus the beast in right the cave oh i just want to mention even though bard is like such a classic hero in this chapter he knows where to shoot because of the smallest creature of all um the, the, the thrush, thrush who kind of whispers in his ear um yeah well i love that tie that like because he's of like the line of uh Geryon of dale like that they used to know the language of the thrushes even though i think like even balin who knows a lot of like the bird talk he doesn't know thrush right yeah and so <laughs> i think this is like a really cool again bard's just got all these skills man he's yeah. just like uh yeah and again that small detail that bilbo learned from smaug and he got from him just by flattering him as now proved to be smaug's ultimate downfall yeah absolutely yeah i think it's very cute (laughs) you know big things come in small packages being Mm -hmm. another theme that we've talked about in these and so yeah we still have like some chapters to go and i've i've always really liked how you know, it's built up like the dragon's the main villain, and then it's really not. It's kind of over pretty quickly with Smaug. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's he's vanquished almost immediately, yeah. <laughs> you know, as soon as he leaves his yeah. his uh, mountain. And I, I love that the real danger of this dragon, not only that, I'd say you could see this in some of Tolkien's other dragons, are it's not necessarily the dragon themselves that's the real danger, but once the dragon is slain... Uh, I won't get into spoilers, but the children of Hurin, when Glaurung is slain, that's when the real evil of him kind of comes out. Right. Um, and it's so, and it, then you could almost say like Turin kind of becomes the dragon in a similar way that I think after Smaug's death, Thorin kind of becomes the new dragon under the mountain. Right. So we got some stuff to go into for the last bit, the the, the true climax. We kind of had this fake out climax. So yeah, so our next episode, I'm really looking forward to wrapping this up. So this next episode will focus on the rest of The Hobbit, which will go from The Gathering of the Clouds, chapter 15, through chapter 19, The Last Stage. I'm excited about that. After that, we will just power on through right into the fellowship of the ring yep go right into the lord of the rings we're hoping to do some watch with me's of the adaptations of all of these works i think what we're focused on right now is the rankin basque animated film version of the hobbit yeah if you haven't already please follow us on twitter at half as well pod and if you're listening to this and you're not subscribed to the podcast go ahead and do that as well you'll get it updated to your phone or whatever you listen on. Um, We're available on all of the different podcast apps. 
And whatever application you get your podcasts through, if they have a rating or commenting part of their interface, go ahead and leave us a nice review. Also, you can check out halfaswellpodcast.com where we have our reading schedule that we're reading along to. We also have the Hall of Fire blog where I will be trying to write some blog posts to give a little bit of a deeper dive into the lore for maybe some more experienced readers. Right now I'm working on a blog about Sauron and some of the textual history. Tolkien wrote all these different versions of the Silmarillion from like the 19-teens through the 70s, and a lot of those ideas changed. So really diving into Sauron, he's one of the, the great big bads of this world, and where did he come from? What you know, earlier characters did he evolve from? Uh, I think that'll be a lot of fun for people who kind of want to get to know a little bit more about the great dark lord of Mordor. Very cool, because I, uh, you know, if I have one complaint about reading The Hobbit, it's that there's so little Sauron in it. <laughs> we just get these little mentions of the necromancer. Uh, not nearly enough, really, for my taste. Because, <laughs> um, like, I want to see a necromancer in this world doing stuff with ghosts and uh, stuff. But we will... Um, definitely get more into that in the lord of the rings absolutely i think that about wraps it up here for us today i'm sage and i'm william and this is half Half as as well. well